Kia ora and welcome to another podcast in the wonderful series People, Places and the Climate Crisis, a series where I have the privilege of interviewing 16 outstanding climate experts on climate and local government in the lead-up to the local body elections in October. I'm Lindsay Wood from the Resilience Climate Trust and we're running this series in conjunction with Fresh FM, the top of the South's community access radio station. At the end of the podcast, I'll give you details of the different ways you can listen. But now it's time for this interview with the New Zealand Green Building Council's Director of Market Transformation, Sam Archer. And we're talking on the theme Buildings, Transport and Urban Planning. Sam is the first of two guests on this theme, The other is Professor Rafe Chapman from Victoria University of Wellington. Here's the conversation between Sam Archer and me. I do hope that you enjoy it. Well, today it's my great pleasure to welcome to the the podcast series Sam Archer, who's from the New Zealand Green Building Council. Sam is the Director of Market Transformation at the NZGBC, and we'll come to that again in a minute. But he also has a long background in his his passion area, which is sustainable housing, including having done a major project for several thousand houses for the University of Cambridge. And he's also worked on policy for the UK government. Sam, it's great to have someone of your capabilities joining us to talk about the theme, the built environment, urban design and transport. Welcome. Delighted to be talking to you, Lindsay. Great. Well, look, um, I did mention we'd come to your job title, and I want to do that straight away. Director of Market Transformation, I found both uh, had a sense of purpose and also a sense of intrigue about it. So can you kindly set the scene for us by enlightening listeners and me? What is the market in question? Where are you trying to transform it from and to? And why is this important? Yeah, that's a really great question. It's a bit of a fancy title, isn't it, Lindsay? Uh, oh, I think it's a great title. I like by it. My boss. Um, yeah, so the market in question would be uh, the property industry um, more widely. Um, and, uh, you know, so- sometimes, you know, probably a bit tempted to talk about the construction industry. But in fact, uh, more and more what we're getting engaged with is existing buildings. Mm-hmm. They're a bit of an elephant in the room, actually, when it comes to the sustainable built environment. You know, we've got all these existing buildings and a lot of them are not very sustainable. So, we engage with the property industry more widely. Um, and I guess that kind of transforming the market sort of aspect of my job title is, is a really important um, uh, aspect of the way that we work at New Zealand Green Building Council. We have a really strong focus on uh, the mainstream property and construction industries. You know, we, we, we really feel mm. like if we're going to solve this sustainability problem, we can't just work at the margins. We can't just deal with the kind of, you know, the, the true market leaders, although, you know, we love those uh those uh, projects as well um you know my my real passion is is how how do you drag up by by the bootstraps uh you know the the mainstream property mm. industry that i'm, I'm really completely with you on that agreed yeah. yeah okay well thank you and and why is it important please well, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, our, 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 our property industry um, uh, has is responsible for some pretty big environmental impacts. I think a lot of the, the, the stuff that we're going to talk about today is climate change. You know, mm, so um, exactly. we, we, can, we can talk about the proportions of New Zealand's emissions that come from from construction, um, but all sorts of other environmental and social impacts. You know, right right from you know water quality and runoff in our cities. 
uh, right through to deforestation and, you know, use of unsustainable materials and so on. So there's, there's all sorts of different topics. Um, but, you know, our, our property industry does have environmental and social impacts, and that's really what we're, we're set up to, to try and deal with. Yes, and, and I won't uh, diverge into this just now, but, of course, those are all very physical elements, and there are, there are critical social dimensions to the impacts of property as well, aren't there? And, and in the end, they have a basis on things like social cohesion and, and inequality and all of those things. But that's a well, discussion for another time, maybe. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, um, you know, as I say, you know, carbon, carbon emissions is, is, the, is the big one that we always talk about. But actually, a, a way into the topic of carbon emissions is to talk about some of the social issues around, um, um, in particular, housing in New Zealand, because actually mm. housing is one has, has a massive impact on people's um, well-being and, and uh, quality of life. And, you know, we have we have really big um, asthma uh, and respiratory disease problems uh, more widely in New Zealand caused by a damp, mouldy housing. So you know that's a social and and health issue. So yeah, that's right. There 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 are big wider social issues to do with the built environment, not just uh, the the environmental issues. Yeah. Thank you. It didn't take me long to get off script there. <laughs> that was great. Though. Good answer. And that, that and one of the things about any climate discussion is that everything's connected, isn't it? Anyway, that's I'll right. I'll, I'll, I'll move. Realistic. Sorry, I cut across you there. No, no, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, carry on. Okay. So talking about the construction sector or the property sector, the way you framed it, um, it hasn't really been in the emissions reduction spotlight in the way that, for example, agriculture is or transport is. But I think you and I both know that the moment of truth for the construction sector is starting to feel like it's it's rising up above the horizon and is getting closer. Mm -hmm. uh, Brands, the Building Research Association, has recent and widely acclaimed research on carbon budgets for housing, and that points not only to a daunting level of decarbonisation, uh, as I understand it, to just 10% or less of current practice, but also to us needing to do so almost immediately. I'm hoping you can please put that in that prospect in context for listeners, both in terms of the standalone houses that we're familiar with and how councils should be assisting such changes in terms of urban planning and of building controls where they're so active? Yeah, that's a really great question. Again, Lindsay, I mean, um, as you probably know, um, agriculture is usually the thing that gets the most focus in New Zealand in terms of mm. uh, carbon emissions, and that's because agriculture is you know, typically 50% of our, of our emissions here. Um, I think in some ways it's a bit of a shame that we have put so much of a focus on agriculture because ag actually agriculture is one of the area where making those emission savings is actually probably the hardest. Mm. Um, and also um, it, what it does is it deflects attention from the carbon emissions that actually most ordinary Kiwis that live in cities, live in buildings and, and drive a car and, uh, you know, are responsible for. What a good uh, point. That's a great point. Uh, you know, because if you actually look at the remaining 50%, which is mainly to do with the way in which we live as people, you know, the, the, the buildings that we heat and mm. where we drive, those emissions are very similar to other countries that are trying to reduce those emissions. So, you know, they're also really important that we try and that we try and reduce them. Um, so uh, just to put a bit of, um, uh, you know, a bit of numbers on that, uh, we, we commissioned some work two or three years ago on looking at the proportion um, of our emissions that come from the built environment. And depending on how you slice and dice it, um, you know, you can argue that around 20% of our emissions come from buildings mm. and infrastructure. Um, and about half of that, maybe 9%, uh, 
uh, comes from the upfront emissions, so the you know the embodied emissions, the emissions from the, the actual materials, right. so the, you know yep. the plasterboard and the sorry the jib. It's very topical, isn't it? <laughs> it is, uh, isn't it? And, and the concrete and the uh, you know and and the you know and the steel and all all, all the rest of it. Uh, and, and the other half, uh, you know, the 10 or 11% comes from the way in which we operate buildings. Mm. Uh, so, you know, it's big. I mean, 20% is a, is a big contribution and, um, you know, one that, uh, we, you know, we, we won't meet our climate targets unless we also focus on uh, those emissions from the built environment. Yes, that's right. Um, and a couple of follow-on things. One is that buildings lock those things in for a long time, aren't they? I mean, without wanting to make it sound like agriculture's got it easy, you can actually plow up a pasture and plant corn if you want to, but you can't yeah. quite do that with the building sector, can you? Um, well, well, that's that's right. I mean, um, I think, uh, I, I don't have the exact figures, but I think well over 90% of new homes are built with concrete floors. Mm. Um, and once you've laid a concrete floor, it's very, very difficult to put insulation underneath that concrete floor. Yes. Uh, so, you know, the, the, long, the longer we defer having um, regulations that require concrete slabs to be to be insulated, the more and more, you know, we're building 40, 50,000 houses a year at the moment, you know, and all of those are being built without good levels of insulation. And it is very difficult to retrofit mm. them afterwards. And, and, and also the concrete then gives you that big emission set right at the front end as well, just from the concrete itself, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, you know, concrete is a very big emitter. Uh, in fact, it's mainly the cement in the concrete. Uh, and, um, mm. you know, um, uh, that's one of the reasons why we're, we're putting a lot of work at the moment into, as you say, uh, what we call upfront emissions. So the emissions associated with the actual materials themselves. And, um, you know, concrete is a big part of that. And, uh, you know, to give the concrete industry some due, you know, they are, they are reducing their emissions. They're, they're looking at low, lower carbon cements and things. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's an area that we need to put some focus on. Well, we need to reduce emissions wherever we can, really, don't we? Yep. The other thing I framed that last question in terms of brands' research pointing to a, a spectacular level of reduction, and I'm in, that is down to maybe under 10% of the yeah, – they were talking of embodied carbon, which we'll come to a bit more in a minute. But I'm not – sure what that's going to mean for the way our housing and so on is going to look can you shed any light on that i know we've got some other questions coming up that will you know open the door well, a bit more a, on that it's a daunting reduction isn't it lindsay as Huge. you say what, what, what brands have done is they've taken uh, a typical house built today uh, and actually they've done some commercial buildings as well and they said well what are the emissions from that building over its full life uh, so right from, as we were talking about earlier, the products and materials that went into building that building and then all of the emissions from running it and then mm. also the emissions from end of life. So, you know, when you throw things in landfill, they rot and produce methane and so on. So there's there's emissions right through that life cycle. Yes. Um, and what they've really looked at is the contribution of buildings towards our um, carbon targets. Uh, and the conclusion they reach is that, um, you know, if we just have business as usual, uh, then those emissions are maybe at least five, if not six or seven, eight times higher than they need to be in order to meet mm. our target. So we need to make a massive production. So as you say, there's different areas that we can look at. One would be those embodied emissions. Um, those emissions are quite hard to reduce at the moment because we don't have the products and materials needed um, to, to, to reduce those emissions uh, in, in that really big way. Um, so uh, we, we need concrete, steel, timber industries to be looking at um, the way in which they make those materials uh, and, and radically reducing them. Mm. Um, we're going to need some product substitution. So, you know, at the moment, if you go from a concrete building to a timber building, you're going to make some big savings. 
Um, you know, and it remains to be seen whether um, concrete's going to come to the party and come up with some magical new kind of zero carbon cement. Well, actually, uh, can I just interrupt you there briefly? I've got a, you know, I've got a network around the world like you probably have too. And I got mm. something the other day, the University of Cambridge, interestingly enough. Yes, I thought that. Did you? Yes, that'd be interesting to see whether that gets traction, wouldn't it? Because it, yeah, that's I, right. It needs yeah. you need to be somewhere where you're making steel as well, I think, to to make the use yeah. of it. But but perhaps that's the sort of thing that you were hinting at before in your exactly. answer. Exactly, we're gonna we're gonna need some big innovations, Lindsay, uh, like that, in order to solve some of these problems. Yeah, exactly. Mm, yeah. Um. And yeah, and then we come to the operational emissions. So in some ways, uh, a lot of those are sort of easy-ish to solve. So you know, we know. We've known for a long time how to design houses that um, need very, very little heating. You know, New Zealand has a temperate climate, so mm. uh, designing houses with good levels of insulation and air tightness and, um, uh, you know, uh, that, that kind of thing and, and, and good orientation for solar and all the rest of it. We know how to do that. Uh, and I suspect that the building code will move us in that direction over the next 10 years. Mm. Um, actually, interestingly, from that um, brand's research, once you, once you've um, the building designers have done their bit. So they've, they've reduced radically the amount of hot water used and the, you know, the, the emissions associated with space heating. Mm. Uh, what remains is a really big fraction of that is coming from appliances. So, the, you know, the, the, the plug loads. And yeah. And yeah, plug loads, what we call plug loads. Um, so there's a bit of a philosophical question there about um, the extent to which the, the, the design, the construction industry, the property industry, uh, is responsible for re reducing those emissions. Mm. Um, I, I think, you know, that that's going to require, I think, a different set of policies and regulations and skills to get um, those those domestic plug loads down. Yes, you know, yes. Selling product, product products with, with uh, you, you know, better energy use and so on. Oh, that's yeah. interesting, Sam. And, and in a, as you were talking, I was thinking a little bit of what's sometimes called the rebound effect, where we've now got much lower wattage lamps but we put an awful lot more of them in don't we so it, it's a sort yeah. of yeah yeah overlighting yeah mm. and and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty I'm, I mean, I'm guilty of that you know i've got of course i've got led uh, lamps everywhere and uh, you know I, I do sometimes catch myself going oh well it doesn't matter i don't need to turn the light off because you know it uses so little energy i mean i think that the rebound effect definitely exists but having said that the the energy of the electrical energy used for lighting has plummeted in um, oh in, yeah but uh, in, in the developed world, as a result of LED, so I, mean, I think I think you can you can over exaggerate the um, the, the rebound effect. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for putting that in perspective for me. I wasn't wasn't trying to bag the whole LED movement. I was just no. pointing a little bit to the, the the thing of what we switch on in houses. Um, yeah. No, thank you. That's really interesting. When you were talking a little bit about embodied carbon now, and I just want to dig into that a little bit more. Um, we've got the familiar materials of timber, concrete, and steel in particular. There's a yeah. lot of talk about the big carbon footprints of steel and concrete and the benefits of timber because it stores carbon um, when it's growing. Is also there's the fact that it doesn't use so much carbon in production of the, the components we use. However, mm. things aren't really as simple as they seem, even in those common products. Can you outline for listeners the key climate characteristics of those materials and and what your crystal ball reveals to you about the changes in our construction practices that may be in the wind and manifest themselves in 20 years' time. And if I mm. can, you, you did mention a moment ago that we don't really have the products yet 
to make the the quantum leap that we need to. So I don't know whether you want to weave that in there as well. Oh, well, that's a really detailed question, Lindsay. So uh, yeah, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll sorry, start sir. unpacking that a bit. I mean, I think the first one is that, no, no problem. I mean, now look, so a lot of people, I guess, in the, in the green building movement are talking about uh, a shift towards mass timber. Um, I think that's less, probably less relevant to, to the way in which we build houses, because generally in New Zealand, we build timber houses. Mm-hmm. Um, although, of course, we still, the vast majority of our houses use concrete floors currently, mm-hmm. and we're building more medium and high density housing in New Zealand. So, and, and again, they're typically made with um, with steel and steel and concrete. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, especially in in commercial buildings, where the default way in which we build a com- you know a, the, the frame of a of a commercial building would be either steel or concrete, or, or, or often a mixture of both. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know they're high emissions materials. Steel and concrete use a you know, use a lot of um, use a lot lot of carbon to, to produce. So there's been a bit of a movement globally and in New Zealand to say, well, maybe we should start building these big commercial buildings and our medium density and high rise uh, residential buildings out of mass timber. So that means things like um, uh, CLT, cross laminated timber, and, and and generally more generally this idea of engineered timber. So, you know, instead of just cut, cutting up planks of wood, you know, you, you, you create um, very stable um, uh, uh, wood products, which are, you know, usually made out of laminated sheets of, of timber mm. glued together in some way. And can um, be built up into big profiles and things if needed, right. can't they? Yeah, so you can make these, these very stable, very, um, uh, very strong uh, beams and, and products out of, out of timber. So mm. it's a really good way of building. And so... <laughs> uh, on the whole, when you do that, you are going to be reducing the, those embodied emissions um, uh, from, from the frame of your building. But as you say, uh, Lindsay, it's quite complex because um, the reason that timber is often seen as being sustainable is because um, when you chop a tree down and you turn it into a building product, then what you're doing is you're storing the carbon that was absorbed by the tree and you're, you're mm. storing it into a building component, and then hopefully that building has a long life, let's say 90 years, 100 years, um, and over those 100 years, that carbon is stored. And if you've bought that timber from a sustainable uh, forest, then um, the uh, the forest would have been replanted um, uh, when the tree was cut down, and so the new yes. tree is starting to absorb carbon. Uh, and so there's this idea that that stored carbon is, is, a, is if you like, a negative uh, I don't mean a negative as a bad thing. I mean a negative in terms of your carbon balance. It's negative emissions. <laughs> negative emissions. It's this idea of negative emissions, exactly. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I guess that is true. Uh, you know, if, if we all started building out of timber, then we would be storing a lot of like, what's called carbon sequestration. We'd be storing a lot of carbon. Um, and in the short term, that is a good thing because, um, uh, you know, in over, over the short term, we're, we're storing up lots and lots of carbon and helping... Uh, reduce emissions uh, in in the short term. The problem comes later on down the line, which is um, you know what happens to that timber in ninety years. And um, I think um, at the extreme case, it could be thrown in a landfill. And um, a lot of the environmental um, kind of rules and regulations suggest that you should assume that that timber rots down in the landfill, and then that turns into methane. And so the, mm. the um, and, and and so those emissions then just go back into the atmosphere. Um, and so um, some people would say that actually timber is carbon neutral. It's, it, you know, it's, it doesn't, it's not hugely negative and it's not hugely positive. It's, it's, an, it's a neutral mm. product. 
Um, I, I guess there's another issue as well with timber, which is that if, if we all go headlong for mass timber, then, um, you know, do we have enough forestry to, to be able to cope with a sustainable forestry to be able to cope with that? Uh, you know, you get sort of perverse um, incentives there where, you know, you could argue, let's build a, a, a timber building, um, knock it down after two years and build another one and then knock it down <laughs> in two years for a landfill, you know, because, we, you know, we're continually sequestering carbon and, and, and that would not be good for no, biodiversity, no. But, you know, because we simply don't have enough um, uh, forestry to be able to do that. So it's definitely not a panacea, but I, I think the move towards mass timber is, mm. is probably a good thing um, in the short term. Right. And, and I mean, I may be wrong on the figures, but from memory, I think between 80 and 90% of our timber mm. gets exported as logs, doesn't it? And now I'm not saying it's all good building quality timber, but one would think that there must be some way of redirecting some of that product stream into a, a more usable format. Uh, that, that's yeah, a different I mean, well, I mean, I, let, let me answer that question a bit, Lindsay, which is that, um, uh, you know, if, if we're going to be building a lot of buildings out of mass timber in New Zealand, then we need um, the factories to produce the mass timber. Yes. Um, and there have been some attempts to sort of set up big factories to do that. Um, the, the issue is that New Zealand's such a small market that you need, in order to, um, you know, get an investor to invest in building those big factories, you need to have a good pipeline of, of mm. um, projects to supply to. Uh, and I think a lot of us are thinking that if government really, really wants that to happen, then they need to be, uh, you know, government is one of the biggest um, uh, procurers of construction projects. Yes, uh, of course. And, and therefore, they yeah. should be they should be putting their money where their mouth is and saying, we're yeah, going yeah. to actually support the, the heavy engineering, timber engineering industry. Well, That's well, right. My area, Nelson's got quite an interest in that because Nelson Pine is quite active there. And also, mm-hmm. we were we were the original home of Exlam before it was bought up and exported to Australia. So Back to Australia, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just to be clear, Lindsay, I think um, some people have suggested that we should have a government kind of timber first policy, and that has been mooted. You know, mm-hmm. so if we're building new schools and new kind of or building new houses, then they should prioritise timber as a, as a framing right. material. I think we, we think slightly differently in NZGBC. We think that um, what, the, what the project should have is carbon targets. And if timber is the right way of meeting those carbon targets, then great. But I mean, actually, if other product materials yes, yeah. come to the party with lower carbon products and materials, then you know, why should they not be used as well? So not a one-size-fits-all approach. That's good. No. Um, if I can just um, go sideways a moment, Sam, because it occurred to me as you are talking, one of the things that hasn't cropped up in our discussion, and it doesn't crop up in a lot of discussions, although I know brands have pushed it a bit, is the idea of reducing the size of buildings, that one of the very first things we can do to reduce carbon is to actually build a bit smaller. And yeah. I remember years ago being involved, I used to be at Unitech, and I had a student there from Malaysia, and he was studying state houses. And one of his comments was, a lot of these state houses would be called palaces where I come from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, can yeah. you comment on the question of reducing size as a strategy oh. of de- decarbonizing? Yeah, it's a really good one, Lindsay. I mean, um, the uh, New, New Zealand, I think, has the third biggest uh, new houses in the world, second only to Australia and uh, and America. Wow! Yes. Uh, um, so we do we do build very big houses, and um, you know the statistics are really telling. So I think in the nineteen fifties and sixties, the average new house was one hundred square meters. Mm, that, um, old thousand thousand square feet. It used to be. Exactly, 1,000 square feet. And um, that ballooned uh, until recently to a peak, I think, of just over 200 square metres was wow. the average new building in New Zealand. 
Um, and thankfully, that number is now starting to go down the other side of the hill, um, you know, with, a, with our move towards move, medium density and higher density housing. So I, th I think we're, we're starting to see the light and realise that in terms of efficiencies, um, and if we want to solve affordability, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of daft, isn't it? We talk about affordability as being an issue in New Zealand, and, and yet we're building 200 square metre houses. You know, You're right. 200 square metre house is not an affordable house, right? So No, no. Uh, yeah. And also that what's inside it is often much higher specification than it used to be too. You know, we've got right. tiled finishes as well as things like double glazing there for good reason. Oh, really interesting. I, I have to be careful that I don't sidetrack us too much, Sam, but thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, you mentioned earlier the other angle to emissions associated with buildings is besides embodied emissions, which are the products, is the, the aspect of building emissions known as operational carbon mm. from the likes of ongoing energy use needed to run buildings. And, and I think there's a bit associated with water, although not so much. While we know renewably generated electricity is a key part of reducing those emissions, there is a growing realisation that we'll need to run much lower energy societies. And in fact, two of our guests on this series, Professor Susan Crumdike and Prof. Pat Bodger, both have been talking in that area. How do you see these considerations impacting on the design and the construction of buildings, including sort of planning considerations around urban infrastructure for a reduced energy society? Yeah, that's a really important question, uh, Lindsay. So I think, you know, on, on both sides of the argument, uh, I think we often don't um, stress enough how buildings, you know, they don't they don't exist in isolation. Mm, right. Um, yeah. So I mean, of course, uh, with the exception of occasionally people build off grid uh, buildings and houses, mm. but you know, the vast majority <laughs> yeah. of our buildings mm. are uh, are grid connected, and so right. um, they're a holistic system, right? So um, we've got the energy demand created by the buildings, and we've got the energy supply uh, from from our grid. Mm. Um, and um, you know there, there, there are two ways we could look at it, and and so at, at a government level, uh, very strongly, uh, the government has often look, looked at it just from a supply point of view. So mm -hmm. uh, the way in which we solve our carbon emission problem is by uh, decarbonising the grid, so um, having a lot more renewables on the grid, and forgetting housing. Uh, and then often from the housing perspective, we just say, well, it, you know, it, we just need to um, uh, go off grid and have lots of PV on roofs and, and, and that kind of thing mm. that will solve our problem. And I mean, the, rea the reality is that, uh, you know, the vast majority of our buildings are going to con continue being grid, grid connected. And so we need Correct. to be looking exactly. at that in, a, in a kind of holistic way. Um, so uh, as, as I was saying, uh, there's a real temp temptation to think that we can just decarbonize the grid and we solve the problem. A couple of issues with that. One is that, we're continuing to put fossil fuel systems in our buildings, so um, still point. a lot of our yeah. still a lot of our new houses have gas boilers, gas califons for mm. uh, hot water, mm. uh, gas fireplaces, and so on. Um, uh, I think uh, inevitably we're going to have to move to a situation where those get phased out. Um, you know, uh, so um, that, that's going to be important. And then ND Green Building Council um, is looking at. Uh, our own uh, standards, um, trying to try to phase out fossil fuel um, uh, boilers from 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 the buildings. Well, I think for, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but people wanting to build, say, a, a Green Star, a commercial building or a Home Star building, they they get points for eliminating fossil fuels, don't they? Correct. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Um, and, and then and then we talk about so uh, so we think are, 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 are an important part of. Um, 
decarbonizing our buildings is by electrifying them. So we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're about to publish some guides to electrification. So how do, how do you electrify buildings? Including actually some interesting challenges around uh, commercial kitchens. Uh, we're, we're increasingly seeing mm. commercial kitchens electrify now. You know, you, you know, you could tra- tra- traditional kind of view of a commercial kitchen being lots of big gas burners. Ex- exactly. You know, yeah. Totally. But, but actually, you know, there, there there are quite a few commercial kitchens now happening which are fully electric. So that's 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 more than possible. Mm. Um, but the important thing is, once we've electrified, we then need to be really, really um, uh, careful and efficient with our use of electricity because. It's not an unlimited resource. Mm. Um, so Transpower and uh, government and others have suggested that we probably need to double the generation of electricity in New Zealand in order to cope with things like the electrification of transport, so moving towards electric cars mm. um, and electrification of industry. Um, so, you know, if we're going to double that, that that supply of electricity, where's all that new electricity going to come from? It's logistically uh, huge, isn't it? And, and it's all it's going massive. to be renewable as well. That's right. You know, so we, you know, we often we often go, oh well, isn't it brilliant that we have a um, you know a, over eighty percent renewable grid? But that grid's got to double in capacity, uh, Lindsay. Mm-hmm. So you know, where's all that going to come from? And and so we we would very strongly argue that um, it's better to reduce the demand for electricity in the first place because mm-hmm. often yeah. as we were talking about earlier on, if you do that in existing homes, then often you're getting social and health and uh, and other benefits as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and very often. It's um, it's much much cheaper to save electricity than it is to to generate generate new renewable electricity. So um, you know all of those things point to energy efficiency as being a critical aspect of mm. uh, of that of that story. I, I don't know if you've come across Amory Lovins of the Rocky Mountain Institute, yeah. but uh, yeah. he he is a champion of what he calls the negawatt, isn't he? That yeah, I love that, that term. Exactly yeah. as you're saying that you saving electricity is your is your best way of solving a, an energy problem, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah, that's right. And Lindsay, we're just doing some research at the moment into um, so Massey University have done a, a project which I think has convincingly proved that our peak electricity demand, which is um, in a winter, you know, on a winter's evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when people turn on their you know their heat pumps and so on get home from work, you know our peak demand is uh, the, the vast majority of it is residential in nature, right? Um, and and so we're we're very interested and we're doing some more research now and looking into the extent to which um, energy efficiency in our homes and more insulation and a better building code and big big retrofit programs of insulation and housing could could, could really re- radically reduce that peak demand problem that we have in New Zealand. Oh, how interesting! And and yeah, and that becomes a a key part of how much generating capacity we need, and how much we can get rid yeah. of fossil fuel generation and everything, doesn't it? That's right. And how we can deal with our dry year problem, you know. So at the moment, uh, you know, we rely on hydro, but hydro in a very dry year is then problematic. And mm. you know, if we can reduce that peak demand. It really really helps with that. All right, fascinating, Sam. Thank you. I'm going to move on to a different topic now. Uh, there's recurring discussion about what we've heard of as a circular economy, but it's often hard to pinpoint how that will manifest itself in reality. Mm, I mean, we all have yeah. an idea of reusing things and not extracting raw resources and things. In the construction sector, I get a sense of that this will be increased standardization so stuff can be reused. It'll be fixings that can be easily undone. And I think in turn that'll lead to what I've called demolition yards on steroids. Uh, yeah. <laughs> However, I'm yeah. sure it will go much further. It always does, such as into building regulations for reused materials. So I'm going to give you a magician's hat for a moment. I like doing this to my guests. If you had a magic wand and could cast a circular economy spell, 
over designers and building regulators, what would those spells invoke to make it all work magically? Uh, well, I think as you're pointing to, Lindsay, the idea of a circular economy, um, I think probably in most industries, but especially the construction industry, is still very much on the kind of lower slopes of the, of the mountain. You know, we, we mm. still don't really have a full handle on what the circular economy looks like for construction. Um, there are little shoots going on, you know, so um, there's still this idea that uh, there's a lot of wastage, for example, on construction sites. So, you know, mm. maybe 30, 40 percent of uh, plasterboard and bricks are, are wasted on site. So, you know, um, some suppliers are now thinking about take back schemes. So, you know, you throw all the plasterboard in a skip and it would go then back to the plasterboard manufacturer and they turn it back into plaster, plasterboard mm. instead of it going to landfill. Um, but really the challenge with the circular economy with buildings is the buildings, you know, they have quite a long life, you know, so if, if a house is around for 90 years, uh, it, you know, is it really likely that the original supplier of that material is going to want to mm. you know, take back that material and do, do something with it at the, end, at the end of its life? So this, it is really difficult. I think um, we are increasingly seeing uh, designers um, think about um, designing their buildings in such a way that they can be unbolted and 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 making components that are reusable. Mm. Um, you know, we, we were talking about engineered timber earlier on, and I was saying, well, they, you know, there's a risk that it could go to landfill and rot. But actually, if you've got a really good quality engineered timber beam, um, I, I think that there'll be a lot of um, desire to actually, you know, unbolt that timber beam and and use it uh, a, a, again in, in another building. Uh, as we go through. So I think, yeah, we're, we're really at the early stages of circular economy mm. thinking, uh, but those are some of the things that we might see emerge. I remember I've had a bit to do with the EU and Germany over the last few years, and one mm. of the concepts that I've come across there, and I'm sure you will have too, is what they call BAM, the B-A-M-B, Buildings as Materials Banks. And, uh, and it's, right. it's, a, it's a small shift in terminology, but I found it quite a jump in in mindset, and that is that we we could look on buildings as a place that store materials for ongoing use, rather than as the end destination of materials. Yeah, yeah um, that's right. And yeah. it's quite a shift in mindset, I found for me, anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and we need little shifts. Like, I mean, right at the beginning, you mentioned the, the the big housing development that I worked on in Cambridge, and one of the things I did I didn't get my way, unfortunately, mm. but one of the things that we were looking into was. Uh, the, the development was all built out of it was all brick. So brick, mm -hmm. brick is obviously a, a very fashionable building material in the UK, and we built a lot of our houses out of brick. The issue is that if you use cement as the as the as the mortar, it's then very difficult at the end of life to separate the bricks yes, and be able to use them. You know, whereas a couple of hundred years ago we used lime mortars and exactly. they're much much more forgiving mm -hmm. in terms of being able to take those bricks apart. So there's all sorts of things like that we need to start thinking mm -hmm. about. Yeah. We're going to move to a circular economy. I know not not so many years ago, it was very popular to recover demo bricks for paving and things like that. And mm. it was always a bonus if you got ones that had been uh, compiled with lime mortar because they cleaned up so much more easily. Exactly. Nice, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, we're, we are sort of drawing towards the end here, Sam, but I've got another question to put to you and then a, an opportunity. I hope you'll see it as... Um, you yeah. and I are both familiar with developing a carbon, carbon assessment tools. For example, the NZGBC has just launched the HEC tool, and my company is developing uh, ClearCut, we call it, and it's not far behind. However, at present, 
we both face the dilemma, or anybody developing these tools faces the dilemma of striving to support an industry in what is a rapidly evolving field. The word is that it won't be long before we can expect some form of carbon calculations to be included as a building consent requirement. Can you give listeners who are not necessarily an industry specialist the crew, can you please give listeners some insights into what form these sort of uh, regulations might take and when we might see them come into force? Yeah, that's really good, Lindsay. So we spent all of this interview, um, you know, avo avoiding um, the important point, which is that uh, MB that are responsible for our building uh, regulations, building code in, in New Zealand, has a program at the moment called Building for Climate Change. Mm. Um, and the intention with that program is, at the moment, uh, is what they're focusing on is a series of incremental um, uh, improvements, toughenings uh, of the building code over the next, mm. we think, you know, till the, till the early 2030s, let's say. Um, and so um, over those three steps, you would see operational emissions capped. So, um, you know, the emissions associated with the electricity consumption uh, and the gas emissions from boilers and things like that, that would yes. slowly be um, be tightened up. Um, and then, you know, we've talked a lot about embodied emissions. There aren't that many jurisdictions around the world where those embodied emissions or upfront emissions are regulated. But Oh, is um, that right? That interests me. No, not very, many, not very many. France does it, I think. Um, the Netherlands does it. But, they, you know, there are very few countries that, that, that wow, are Wow, okay. Right. So, but um, but MB is talking about doing it. So in their consultation document a few years ago, they said that they they, they would like to start uh, at first, just measuring those embodied emissions at the point of uh, building consent, mm. um, but then over time actually starting to cap them. Um, oh. Yeah, and I, I think what you're hinting at is I, th I think one of the issues with embodied emissions is that um, those upfront emissions is that the there aren't really good common nationally agreed ways of measuring those emissions, mm. uh, and the result of that is lots of different architects, and designers, and builders are measuring those emissions in slightly different ways and getting very different answers. So if you gave three identical buildings to three different architects, you'd probably end up with three quite different um, uh, embodied emissions calculations, which, you know... Is a, That's not a good process from a compliance no. point of view or anything, is it? No, no. So what, what we've been doing at NZGBC is uh, really trying to knock a few heads together and um, uh, reach some consensus on uh, the best way of doing it. Uh, and that's that's kind of important work for us to be doing in preparation for government, hopefully making it regulation in two or three years' time, because mm. uh, we hopefully will have got most of the industry on board with a, a way of doing it rather than the kind of multifarious uh, different yeah. ways that are currently being used. Yeah. I'm totally on board with that. And we both know David Dowdle at Brands. Brands and, yeah. and, and Dave is a very strong champion of unifying, for example, carbon data, isn't he? So that at least That's everybody's right. using the same data that they're putting into their calculations, and then that, even if their methodology is a little different. Thank yeah. you for that, Sam. Well, we're coming to the end here, but one of the things that I love about having someone with the sort of capabilities that you have, all of these specialist guests, is that I would like to invite you to close this interview with with giving what would be your top take-home message for the population generally, but especially also for listeners wanting to factor climate change into their thinking for the coming local body elections, which is uh, one of the themes. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, thank you so much for giving me that uh, that grandstand. Uh, hopefully, I won't grandstand too much, uh, Lindsay. But oh, I, go um, for it, go for it. Well, I, I suppose um, one of my real passions with sustainability is is preaching this idea that um, some of the early, you know, twenty years ago when we were just starting to get on the journey of um, convincing the public that we need to um, to change our ways with with climate change, there was a real focus on personal behaviour change. So, you know, there are a lot of messages out there around, um, uh, you know, turning off your phone chargers and recycling and, and, and so on. You know? Okay, so, yeah. And I really think uh, the environmental movement made a really profound mistake in putting that focus on, um, you know, individual responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, for a couple of reasons. One, one because um, the the magnitude of the savings you can make with those little kind of uh, moves is so little as to be, um, uh, just, you know, in the face of the kind of 80%, 90% carbon emission savings we actually need to make, mm. um, they're just, they're just, they're just not enough. Um, and, and, you know, if, if, if individuals were to make those massive 80% savings, the, the level of sacrifice needed would be so immense that we're really not going to achieve it that way. Um, and, and I really, I really point to, um, my own, um, uh, native com- uh, country, the, the United Kingdom, because the, you know, the UK has, reduced its emissions by 40% since 1990. Mm. And it hasn't really achieved that through, um, you know, messages for the public to turn off their, their phone chargers and to drive a little bit, bit, bit less. They've done that through really big policy moves. Uh, so, and, and the biggest one being the government decision to, um, to require the, the power generation to phase out coal, mm. yeah. you know. And, and so I think um, the, the message I want to get across really is that uh, if we're really going to solve the climate change problem, then it's going to require some really, really big moves from both government and industry. You know, another little st- statistic there, um, I think uh, uh, 71% of global emissions come from just 100 companies. Uh, uh-huh. So, um, you know, the, the focus needs to be on really big regulations uh, to, to, to reduce those emissions, regulating those 100 companies, uh, not on, um, you know, kind of, kind of the behaviour behavior change messaging which is sort of trivial uh, in the face of the really big emission savings mm, we need to make. Mm. Very interesting I wasn't expecting that at all so it's great to have a, 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 a new perspective thank you Sam that's a that's wonderful well unfortunately even though I could keep grilling you with questions I better let you go and we better bring this to a close thanks so much for joining us on this this episode of the people places and the climate crisis podcast series it's wonderful to have your input and i've really enjoyed having a chat with you so many thanks sam likewise lindsay it's been really great you know great set of questions and uh, really great to talk to you thanks thank you isn't it such a privilege to be able to hold a conversation with someone like sam archer and to be able to tap into his incredible breadth of knowledge now i promise to give you listening options for the series people places and the climate crisis You can listen to the full interviews with each guest on their own podcast, and these are available on Spotify, Apple, and other main platforms. And they can be linked from my firm's website, which is at www.resilience.co.nz, where you can then navigate to our podcast page, And that will give you a full schedule, plus background information, plus links to all the podcasts, as well as to the Fresh FM broadcasting frequencies and to podcasts of the radio shows, 
with most interviews condensed to about the half their length on those shows. As always, I don't want to finish without giving a big shout out to Kahu Sanson Burnett, who's my invaluable sound tech and podcast whiz. And of course, a big shout out to you, our listeners. Thank you so much for joining this important discussion. We have many more fascinating experts coming up on the series, and I do hope we enjoy your company for them too, including next up on the same theme, Buildings, Urban Form and Transport, we have Professor Rafe Chapman from the Victoria University of Wellington, who specialises in climate and urban policy. And as always, kia kaha for the climate.